today on Ag News Daily. I think there's a good chance that at some point the market's going to get really excited about the fact that we're rather behind. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. It is another Hashtag Market Monday here on the Ag News Daily Podcast. Of course, we are sponsored today by agmarket.net. My name is Delaney Howell, and I am joined by my co-host, Michael Pearson. Good afternoon, Delaney Howell. It is a beautiful Monday here in Chicagoland. What's it like in Iowa? Um, Well, it was rainy this weekend, but today it is sunny. There is some wind going on, so I think... For those folks that aren't done yet, they will hopefully get a little dry, dried out this afternoon. Perfect. Yeah, I was talking to a few growers on our uh, our Facebook chat group, the Ag Hedge chat group, and um, yeah, that was the general sentiment for the Upper Midwestern folks. It seemed like this morning, you know, maybe caught a couple. I heard a couple guys say, you know, two tenths. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, like you say, with that wind, with a little bit of sunshine, hopefully ground a little solid solidify enough that they can get some combines running, get some trucks out in the field, and get some more of this corn moved before we get the USDA's crop progress report this afternoon in a scant uh, hour, just after we finish recording. So be sure to tune in tomorrow, and we'll have those numbers for you. Yeah, I think today's report is going to be quite interesting, and we uh, chatted with Ted Seifried for today's market discussion, and we talked a little bit about that report. So it sounds like it's just a matter of time before the market starts to breathe some life into it from these reports well you know you'd think so and uh, we'll get ted's thoughts on that in just a second but in the meantime delaney we've got news going on in the world of agriculture what is jumping out at you today well i think it's just the continued discussion with the u.s china trade deal we saw of course that the santiago chile conference was canceled because of political unrest as of last week this week though China is offering new hope that that phase one trade deal will be still signed this month after some high level trade talks that happened on Friday. According to a Chinese Commerce Department statement released, they said, quote, a consensus on principles has been reached, end quote. So it sounds like they are confident that they've found some, I guess, whatever that means, consensus on principles. And on Friday, they also touted where they should reschedule to sign this U.S.-China trade deal in one of the locations that has been floated around, Mike. You got any ideas? You got a guess? Uh, Macau. No, I don't even know where that is. Oh, it's an island off the coast of mainland China known for its casinos. They had uh, floated that one about a week or so ago, but I'm guessing they've dropped it. What are they floating now? The I'm latest? Guessing, wait, it's a Trump property. No, but that's a oh. good guess. The latest actually been has um, been the state of Iowa. Because Iowa has been so heavily impacted by these trade tariffs and negotiations. So I thought that was interesting. You know what? They would get a very warm welcome if they come to Des Moines, I am sure, because we would love to see some sort of a trade deal signed. Yes, and if they do come to Iowa, I will definitely be going to that meeting. And, hey, listen, actually, meeting planners for this summit, I tell you what, if you really want a good down-home feel, I know a feed yard that I can rent you in Grinnell, Iowa. <laughs> it's got plenty of – it's a four-bedroom place, so, mm. so President Xi could have his own room, President Trump could have his own room, and then they could sign it right there on the dining room table, and for only $50,000, they can rent the <laughs> property for the week. Wow. Will that be like the entire value of your old farmhouse? 
It would it would cover some of my debts, yes, which would be <laughs> much appreciated by my banker. <laughs> oh, geez. Well, so that is good news. That That is good news here. While we're talking China, I've got another update. Of course, we do know that China is facing a severe shortage of of uh, protein, as African swine fever has, of course, swept through that country. They are trying to make do by uh, encouraging people to switch from eating pork to eating poultry, and they're doing this a number of different ways. The first is they are converting hog farms that have been impacted by African swine fever into poultry operations. The second is they are ramping up poultry imports from other countries around the world. To that end, it was reported earlier today that China, their customs department, has decided to lift a ban on poultry and poultry products from Spain and Slovakia. They put a ban in place in 2016 on those two countries after bird flu was discovered, and they have apparently now decided that enough time has passed. They are confident in re-importing poultry from those two places. Now, they're not huge poultry exporters, but to me this does go to show that China is willing to knock on every door to try and uh, do something to bring the cost of food down in that country, considering they have skyrocketed over the past year. Huh. That'll be interesting to see. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, we're, we're going to find out soon just whether or not they do actually start to make those purchases. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, I get a morning newsletter called The Morning Brew. I highly recommend it if you just want some general news. It's not necessarily agriculture. It's kind of commodities, stocks, and just some random trade news. But I thought this was really interesting this morning. On Sunday, Saudi Arabia went public about their plans to create the world's largest IPO And that will be the company Aramco, which if you think back to September, it was the company that had some uh, terrorist and drone attacks on it that happened. And so come December, Aramco is going to be turning into a publicly traded company. We don't know yet how many stocks they will allow to be purchased but uh, it will be the world's largest IPO to date by quite some substantially quite some bit and uh, so a lot of folks on wall street have been looking into this and uh, it sounds like it's going to be a really really big deal a big hot deal and um, just to put it in perspective their net income at aramco was 111 billion dollars last year which topped apple exxon mobile and a bunch of other companies and uh, apparently the saudi crown prince um had initially targeted the value of Aramco at $2 trillion, but reportedly he made a mistake. It's more like $1.5 trillion that this company is valued at. Yes, and uh, listeners might recall about a year ago we had an interview with uh, Dr. Ellen Wald. She's the author of a book called Saudi Inc., and uh, she was talking about this very issue. You know, they've been They've been back and forth on this IPO for quite some time, and uh, yeah, like Delaney said, we don't know exactly how much they're going to offer. I saw several estimates uh, from different companies trying to value this IPO, and they ranged anywhere from $1.2 trillion up to $2.24 trillion for an IPO. So this is going to be a huge event when it happens, and it's one of those things where um, we are going to see some excitement flow back, at least into the crude oil portion of commodities. 
But as long as investors are looking at commodities, there's always the possibility they can look over at the ags and try to find a compelling story there as well. Yeah, so how many zeros would Trillion have after it? Nine? Nine. That's a lot of zeros. That's a lot of zeros. Big dollars. Big, big dollars. Mm-hmm. The uh, the Saudi family, the ruling family, would remain majority shareholders. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're going to share off just a, sell off just a very small percentage of the company in this IPO. But, uh, yeah, big, big deal. Big deal. Could do. Could be interesting to see if it creates any volatility for the oil markets or what happens there. Right. Yeah, I mean, it's, this is going to be a game changer. The, the Saudi oil industry has been controlled by this family mm-hmm. since the 1950s. And this will be the first time that outsiders have really had a chance to kind of cash in on it. And uh, you can be darn sure there's going to be a lot of folks trying to uh, make their millions. Yeah, I don't think you – like, I, as far as I can see, I don't think there are any stipulations from, like, what country you're from. So I feel like anybody around the world could invest into this. Right. I still don't know if we know what uh, exchange they're going to list it on. Mm-hmm. They were in top conversations with the London Stock Exchange. I know they're in conversation with New York, but we're having some regulatory issues based on what was going to need to be released. So a lot of details remain to be um, seen, but it's, it is expected to come uh, what by the end of the year, right? Yeah. Or first yep. quarter of next year. December is when it says. All right. Well, we'll just keep an eye on it and see what happens. That we will. We've got a story here from Reuters. We have talked quite a bit about the hemp market. Of course, uh, you can uh, tune in tomorrow. We'll discuss it in a little more. No, wait, what's today, Delaney? Is today Monday? Mm-hmm. Yeah, we're talking hemp tomorrow, aren't we, on Tech Tuesday? I think we're talking hemp maybe on Wednesday. Wednesday, we're talking hemp. Well, soon <laughs> enough, we'll be talking hemp. But um, Reuters kind of dug into what hemp has meant on the farm. And uh, what they did, I thought this was very clever. This was put together by a uh, reporter by the name of Illab. Isabella Jabillion, and she went around and she interviewed farmers who are outside the kind of key hemp-growing areas, which we know to be Oregon, Washington, California, and Kentucky, places that have experience with either tobacco or cannabis. And what she's found is that for a lot of these growers outside these key regions, hemp uh, might not have been the cure-all that growers were hoping it would be. Uh, She interviewed a, a farmer by the name of Dan McClure, who was in Vermont. Vermont, he planted a small eight acres of hemp just to experiment and to see uh, see how it went. And he said that a lot of his crop uh, was infected with uh, white mildew. Others failed lab tests. Basically, they came back too high in THC. And now he has to overcome his fixed costs. Delaney, what do you think it costs to grow eight acres of hemp? Um, are we saying all costs included or just seed or what are we talking here? Just, just total cost. What's he got to okay. sell to break even on his eight acres? Let me think about this. For a second. I'm going to guess he's probably got to sell $50,000 worth. A $140,000 investment cow. to make this uh, conversion just for thir- just for eight acres mm. of hemp. And so he is one of thousands of U.S. farmers who have kind of jumped into the cultivation of hemp. And what they have found is that 65% of hemp growers don't yet have a buyer for their crop. You know, there isn't a local elevator you can, you know, just haul your hemp to. And so the folks that are going to be successful, it sounds like, are those that were able to um, – 
market ahead of time, grow their hemp on contract with a co-op. So if you are thinking hemp in 2019, start planning now. This is not a crop that you can just drop in the ground and harvest like you can corn, soybeans, and wheat. This one is a specialty crop. And as a niche crop, it requires a lot more skill and forethought in marketing than most of the others we're used to dealing with. So mm-hmm. go ahead and uh, consider it. But look at all your options and make sure you've got a plan for when that crop comes to maturity was the gist of this article. I'd encourage anybody to check this out. The headline is, For Many U.S. Farmers Who Planted Hemp, CBD Boom Leaves Bitter Taste by Isabella Jabillion. Well, and even those folks that did have a end market lined up, I know a lot of farmers that had somebody retail-wise that would pick up their hemp and then this year they already like canceled their contracts with some of those growers yes we were talking about that on twitter actually just the other day it's it's one of those things where in every industry especially when times get tough you've got to worry about counterparty risk you know what Mm -hmm. is the risk that you're assuming whenever you enter into a a transaction with somebody based on the future. What's going to happen if they go broke? We saw this happen to a lot of corn growers when Verisun went under during the early days of the ethanol boom back in 2000, and oh gosh, six, seven, eight, something like around in there. Um, Counterparty risk in a new market like the hemp market is huge. You're going to find shady people jumping into this business trying to make a quick buck. Make sure you uh, you do your due diligence, figure out who you're working with, make sure there's somebody you can trust. And one of the people I was talking to on Facebook said, if you can, establish a payment scheme whereby yeah. you get payments throughout the growing season by meeting specific targets. That way you at least know you're going to get something for that crop that's growing in the field. Absolutely. Yeah, that's a good good piece of advice there. Yeah. Well, Delaney, what other news do you have for us today? I just had one other piece of news And, you know, this is something we've talked about really since the existence of our podcast, and that is what's going on right now with the ELDs or electronic logging devices, and then also those mandatory hours of service. We saw the U.S. Department of Transportation's Federal Motor Carrier Safety Administration, that's a long name, we saw their comment period recently end as of October 21st, and now they're going through that period, looking through those comments, but I believe they received something like 7,500, maybe closer to 8,000 comments, which began back August 14th. They had a 45-day commenting period for the public to send in their feedback about what to do with the hours of service rules. I didn't realize this, though. I thought this was just an interesting piece of information. I'm sure some of you already knew this, but this rule that's in place has been in place since 1937. Wow. So A little bit has changed in the trucking industry in the past, uh, gosh, 80 years. Exactly. So there's still a bunch of agricultural groups pushing to just get the hours of service either amended or completely um, taken off for ag haulers, specifically those livestock carriers. But we're now in the point, I guess, of, Those folks are looking through those public comments. I'm sure they'll have however many more hearings, etc. But just a little update about where we currently sit on that today. All right. And I just have one other piece of news as we transition into the market segment. Of course, we will be talking commodity market prices here with our good friend Ted Seifert. But we also had huge news on the equity side of the markets. 
Earlier today, technology stocks and excitement over the potential, again, of a U.S.-China deal came together to push Wall Street's three main indices, the Russell, the S&P, and the Dow, into record high territory yet again. So we are seeing a lot of excitement there on the equity side of things. But Delaney, should we see what's happening in the world of commodities? Let's do it, Mike. All right, folks, and remember, this is a busy week news-wise. Our sponsors for our market segment are agmarket.net, and these are folks who analyze 240,000 acres. Call them today for your free report. Visit them at agmarket.net. As we take a look today, we've got mixed trade in the grains. Corn and wheat were lower. Beans were slightly higher. December corn was down six cents at 3.83 and a quarter. The March contract was down a nickel to finish at 3.93 and a half. In soybeans, November contract was up one and a half cents at 9.25 and three quarters. The January up one and a quarter, finished at 9.38 even. In wheat, Chicago contract December dropped six and a quarter cents at 5.09 and three quarters. The March down five and a half to finish at 5.16 and a quarter. Jumping over to the world of livestock, Strength in the live cattle. The December contract was up 55 cents at a, at 120.0750. February up 37.50 to finish at 124.60. Mixed trade in feeder cattle. The November contract dropped a nickel to 149.0750. January unchanged on the day. Closed yet again at 146. I'm almost wondering if I've got an error on my screen because this is the third time in a row we've been unchanged in that January contract. Mixed trade in lean hogs. December contract was up 7.5 cents at 64.52.50. February down 67.5 to close the day at 71.90. And of course, we can't forget about our friends in the dairy industry. Not much action today. The November class 3 milk contract was down 3 cents at $20.16. December unchanged on the day closed at 1970. Without further ado, let's kick it over to our friend Ted Seifert from Zaner Ag Hedge. Well, for today's Market Monday, we're bringing back on a very familiar voice to many of you, I'm sure, and that is Ted Seifert, the VP of the Ag Hedge Division for the Zaner Group. Ted, how are you doing today? Doing great, Delaney. How are you? I am fantastic. Is it a little weird that we're doing the markets with you and Mike in the same office today? Yeah, a little bit. He's behind <laughs> me, so like I can't see him, but when he talks, there's like a little delay. Oh, yeah. I <laughs> can see funny. that. But that's okay. But we appreciate you coming on because you're, yeah. you're one of the best ones. Yeah. I like doing the show, so thank you for having me. Yes. Well, Ted, I want to get your thoughts. We've got two what could be substantially big reports this week. We've got the Crop Progress Report coming out this afternoon, as well as the WASI Report coming out later this week. What are your thoughts on those two reports? Are they going to be market movers? Yeah, so I'm wondering when the tipping point happens for the Crop Progress Report. Um, I think there's a good chance that at some point the market's going to get really excited about the fact that we're rather behind. And we look at the November monthly forecast for above normal precip and below normal temperatures, uh, at some point this is a problem, right? And, and, you know, it kind of reminds me of the spring when, you know, we knew two, three, four weeks ahead of time that, hey, wow, this is, uh, we're really behind on planting and the forecast doesn't look good, but the market wasn't reacting. And then all of a sudden, boom, it reacted. I wonder if we're going to see something similar to that. And and I don't know if it's this crop report or this uh, crop progress report for this week or if it's going to be for next week. But sometime, I think, fairly soon, we'll, we'll start to react to that a bit more. Uh, so we'll see what, what this afternoon has to say. As far as the end of the week WASDE report, 
You know, I'm pretty conservative on what I think the USDA is going to do on this report. They generally don't make a whole lot of changes in the November or December reports. The next big one is usually the January report. So I don't have a whole lot of changes. Now, I'm waiting to see what the rest of the market is expecting, but I'm hoping that they're thinking similar to, similarly to me and aren't looking for big changes from the USDA. If that's the case, this report could come and go without much impact on the market, unless there is a big surprise. And the big surprise, in my opinion, would probably be bullish. So I'm hoping that uh, we have tempered our expectations of the report. And if that's the case, I think this report is either going to be a non-event or could be potentially bullish for corn and soybeans. Uh, Again, I don't really see them doing a whole lot on production or really the demand side of the equation. The one thing that I think really does need to change is the soybean export demand. With all the business that we've been doing with China recently and with the big export inspections, the number that we saw to China here this morning, uh, I think they need to add at least 50 million bushels to that export number. And to me, that would come directly off of the carryover because I don't see anywhere else where demand would soften. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I'm expecting to see something in a very low hun- 400s for uh, a carryover for soybeans. I think that should be friendly for the market. Um, so really, I think that's about all that changes on the soybean report uh, on Friday. But but again, I would think that should be somewhat of a friendly number. And for corn, I, I'm I'm wondering if hardly anything changes except for maybe a little bit less harvested acreage, based pretty much on the big uh, winter storm that we had about four weeks ago, uh, that put you know almost two feet of snow on some places in North and South Dakota. Well, Ted, that's them. We saw that huge snow event. We've seen delays in harvest across particularly the northern plains. We are anticipating continued delays in this harvest season. And yet today, looking at the December corn chart, shoot, we sold off five and a half cents here the final uh, three hours of trading. Why are we not reacting? Are we are we selling the rumor here to buy the news maybe tonight on the reopen? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question, Mike. And again, this is a very similar question to what you guys were asking, you know, back in the spring when we were talking about how we're so far behind on planting and the weather forecast looks terrible. And, and again, it kind of sounds like a broken record. Eventually, I think the market realizes that. But as far as today was concerned, I mean, the wheat was rather heavy. That had corn on the defense early. We started challenging some key support levels, not finding a whole lot of support there. So that kind of pulled, pulled us through. And I would say that in the short run, the forecast does look a little bit better than what our concerns were for Friday. Uh, or what our concerns were on Friday, I would say that we're going to have fairly wide open activity here for a few days. Uh, So I think that's where the the pressure was coming from. I think you had some harvest pressure creep into the market. But overall, we're still trading in this sort of sideways range. And we held our our key support lows from from, uh, uh, the recent lows that we had just, you know, a few days ago. Uh, If we continue to hold those lows, which I think we will, then ultimately I think we turn around and we go up and make new highs for corn. Ted, I want to turn our attention to the soybean market because they've had an interesting, really interesting past month. Um, so I was talking to a grower this weekend about the funds and they were asking me, first of all, is this the first time that soybeans have been net long since about February? And secondly, what does that indicate to you when the funds move either net long or net short in one way? No, the funds have been long for a little while. They were just adding to their long position here last week. Um and, you know, the funds have uh, – they, they really always have a want to kind of be long soybeans. If, they, if you pick anything in the grain market, that's the one that they usually favor uh, to be on the long side of. And I think a lot of that positioning is in front of potential t- trade deal. You know, when, when Trump 
announced uh, uh, the phase one trade deal, uh, I think a lot of the the funds wanted to look at, you know, okay, how do I get exposure to that? And soybeans is, is one of the very, very obvious answers. So I think you have a fair amount of that. You know, a lot of the speculative crowd want access to a positive result on a trade deal. And soybeans, again, being a good vehicle for that. Uh, but also, I mean, you look at the balance sheet. You look at the, the fundamental story for soybeans. And back in June and July, when we were making our highs in soybeans, we were talking about a 1.1 billion bushel carryover. Now we're talking about a 460 million as a, a you know, that's what the USDA said in the October report. But here I'm sitting at a 418 and thinking that's way too high. I think it's going to end up closer to something like a 318. And fundamentally, that's a pretty bullish story, uh, especially considering the prices that we have right now. So I think they realize that. I think they're looking for the longer term play. I think they're looking for exposure for the trade deal. Um, and, and again, I think the funds see the writing on the wall that eventually soybeans will probably go higher. Now we're just kind of in a funky time of year where we've got harvest and we do have some harvest pressure happening right now. But as we work through that, I think there's more upside potential as we realize more what the production in numbers are and, and things like that. I mean, right now we're just in a vacuum for news, which is why we've been sort of trading sideways. But longer term, I think the funds think we'll go higher. And I, I tend to agree with that. Ted, let's talk livestock a little bit. We've seen this December lean hog contract just bouncing around here at 63. That seems to be the channel for the low. What's it going to take for us to either bounce up above it can, can, you know, uh, consciously, or what's the news it's going to take to break down below it, and which way do you see us move it? Yes. Uh, good question, Mike. You know, a lot of people are very frustrated that hogs aren't trading significantly higher prices, especially in that December contract. And, uh, you know, to some extent, I'm one of those people uh, because we know the long-term fundamentals. We know that you know ASF is a, is a big issue in China and really uh, more than just China. You know, a fairly sizable part of the world, and that part of the world happens to really, really like pork as a protein. Um, so we know that there's demand to fill. However, our pork prices are not great. Um, our, our hog prices are not are not great. And until our cash market starts to rally. That makes it very hard for the futures to rally. We're already trading at a significant premium to cash in the December futures, and if you go out to the uh, deferred months, they're trading at a very significant premium to the December. So, you know, we've priced in a lot of optimism. Uh, we currently have a lot of optimism priced in. We've seen a lot of sales, but that hasn't by itself budged the cash market. The cash market hasn't gone higher on that. Um, and we've got strong weights. We have a lot of supply up front. So it's it's sort of a, a long-term bullish outlook versus a short-term kind of bearish supply situation and in a in a, a, a poor cash market. So until that cash market really turns around, it's going to be hard to get the futures higher just based on that optimism. We've tried that. We tried that many times, um, you know, going back to last spring, you know, we tried doing it and then we spent the second half of the of the summer really bringing it down on that because again, we were trading well above cash prices, same scenario. Uh, so I don't know. I, I don't know what the, the, the tipping point is going to be. Uh, we've got to work through some of this upfront supply. And once we do that and we start to see the cash market go higher, that's when the futures can really lead the way. But if you look at the deferred month and hogs, deferred months and hogs, we already have a lot of that priced in. So how much upside potential is there? I want to think there's, there's explosive upside potential if China comes in and buys all of our pork. But we've seen significant purchases to this point, and that has not moved the cash market. So that's disconcerting. Now, Ted, it seems like the live cattle complex has had a tremendous little rally here over the past couple of weeks. That February contract is up near the high of 126. 
so I got a two-part question for you. What's it going to take to break through that contract high, and do you think we will? Um, yeah, I think we will. You know, go back to Thursday where we had uh, a reversal down, but we, we stayed within the, the trading range, you know, Wednesday's trading range. <clears throat> you know, everybody's kind of throwing in the towel and saying, hey, wow, you know, we're, uh, <laughs> we're way overbought and we're going to see a bigger correction. But then on Friday we came roaring back, and then here today, although we spent a good portion of the day trying to go lower in the cattle, we ended up closing above Friday's high. That's really good looking on a chart. Yes, we are getting very overbought. So we could be due for a correction at some point here in the relatively near future. We are also looking at a long-term uh, bear trend line that we're going to be running into here very shortly, and that could provide a very likely area to see a bit of a pullback from. However, you know, box beef prices seasonally go higher, and they're already on fire right now. We have Packers margins that are really historically high at the moment. Part of that is because after the Tyson plant fire, we needed to make it attractive for Packers to continue to produce to offset the, the, the production loss from Tyson, but we've done that. We've more than done that, and Packers' margins remain really very good. So to me, that would say that there is significant upside potential in cash cattle and therefore the board as well, as long as box beef prices stay as strong as they have been or continue to advance like they have. Uh, so longer term, I'm bullish cattle. We could be getting to a technical point where we see a bit of a deeper correction, but I still think we're going to end up eventually getting through it and seeing higher prices yet. Now, do you see that same trend spilling over into feeder cattle? They have not been tearing along quite as much as the live cattle contracts, but they've certainly been on the exact same bull market rally. Eventually, that's got to peter out. Ted, right? I mean, we got cattle feeders who are, who are really looking at some very, very tight break-evens currently. Yeah, you're right. Um, and I think a lot of that's going to kind of depend on what happens at the corn market. You know, I think that's where some of the trepidation has come from for the feeder cattle market. Um, but no, overall, I do, I do think we will continue to see higher prices there. Uh, I, I think the live cattle will kind of pull that along. Uh, again, in the, in the near term, watch out for a bit of a correction. I think that could be coming sometime fairly soon. But overall, I still believe that, you know, cattle complex as a whole has upside potential. Awesome. I've got just one final question for you before we let you go, because this is something I know you've been keeping a really tight eye on, which is the strength of the U.S. dollar. Last week we saw it pull back quite a bit. It rallied. Then we saw the Fed cut rates. Bring us up to speed. What is happening with the dollar index, and what does that mean for us going forward? Well, you know, the dollar index is always, always very sensitive to everything that's going on, you know, here domestically, but also everywhere else in the world. And Brexit has been a big topic of conversation when we talk about the dollar. Um, so we'll have to see what happens with that. But, you know, with lowering rates, with, with everything that we're trying to do here, it seems like we are looking for a weaker dollar policy. Um, and then, you know, aside from today, which today was a reversal higher in the dollar, it looks like we're holding support and wanting to try to bounce. Uh, to me, it, it, it's, it looks like ultimately we're going to get through that. And I think the dollar, which, you know, bounced back to just above 97 here again today, I think ultimately we're looking for something between 95 and 94.20. So if we are able to do that, that should bode well for our exports across the board in agriculture, but specifically for wheat. Um, you could also say for corn. I mean, we really need to, to get a shot in the arm of corn exports as well. Um, you could talk about pork. You could talk about beef, really all of it. But, yeah, I, longer term, I see pressure in the dollar. Uh, you know, the reversal here today, I think, was just a, a technically driven thing more than anything else. We're trying to hold that support, but eventually I think we get through it. And I think the dollar continues to come down. 
All right, Ted, before we let you go, remind folks how they can get a hold of you if they'd like to chat about the markets. Absolutely. You can reach me directly at 312-277-0113, or you can find us on the web at www.zaner, that's Z-A-N-E-R.com. You can read a bit about us. You can also sign up for our morning Ag Hedge newsletter, which Mr. Pearson has been doing a great job uh, contributing to, as well as Mr. Dan Hussey and myself. And we can also interact with you on Twitter at the Ted Spread. Is that right, Ted? Oh, yes, the Ted Spread. That is correct, Delaney. <laughs> well, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks, Delaney. Have a great day. We'll talk to you later. Always enjoy chatting with Ted Seifert. He's always got a lot of insight to bring to the table, and he does it with panache, which is something I can respect. He does it with what? Panache, Delaney. Oh, panache. It's like moxie. Yeah, I just, I couldn't understand what you said. Ah, uh, well, okay. you know, you just were tuning me out as usual. Oh, I was not. I mean, it's basically like we're married. You never listen to me, Delaney uh, You never listen to me either, so I suppose we're married in business, aren't we? I suppose so. Anyhow, if people want to catch up on our relationship as we move through time, they can visit us on our website at agnewsdaily.com. We've got two and a half years of podcasts put together. Be sure to visit it, check out the past episodes, see how things have changed in the world of agriculture. Also, be sure to check out the other podcasters who are part of the Global Ag Network. They are fantastic folks who are putting together outstanding content that is relevant to all of us in the world of agriculture. Delaney, they can also find us on social media, but where? Absolutely, Mike. They can find us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at Ag News Daily, as well as at Global Ag Network. We always like to hear your pictures, comments, feedback on the podcast, what we can do to make it better, to bring you content that you value. So do find us there as well. Mike, with that, should we let the people go? Let's let them go. <laughs> <laughs>